Okay, well, welcome back. At least those who came back. What do we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We had 11, so. 11 out of 19. Everybody else must have had a really, really good break and didn't want to come back, right? <laughs> or this is just the dedicated core of the class, right? This is all the ones who are going to get the A's, right? Okay. All right, coming up. This week we have a quiz on the 15th. So that actually is going to be in class. The last 10, 15 minutes of the class we'll be doing the quiz. And you have an article review due on the 16th. So due by Friday. If you're going to bring in a paper copy of it, do bring that in on Thursday. Or drop it off with me on, win on th Friday. I'll be, I'll be here Friday, but you, if you want to drop it off as well. Or of course you can email that to me. I know a couple have already turned that, turned that in. There is the second iTunes quiz is now up and available and it's available through next Sunday. So I'll remind you today and I'll remind you again on Thursday. You can go look at that and take that anytime between now and the end of the day on Sunday. And homework number five. Just what you wanted, right? At least I didn't give it to you before break. So you had break, you didn't have to think about anything, right? And then there'll be another quiz coming up. Two. There you go, sir. And don't get frustrated by the equation. I know there's an equation on there, but I'm going to go over that probably on Thursday. So I'll go over the details on that. If you're comfortable with it, you're welcome to jump ahead. But quiz 4 is in class? Quiz 4 is in class on Thursday. Thursday, yes. And it'll be on the stuff we've cover, we're covering today. And oops, there you go. Which was the one you said was available then? The iTunes quiz is available. That's just the, that's the, pictures, the picture of the day one. And that, that is available right now, but, I, but quiz four is, quiz four I haven't found a good way to put, on the, to put on there yet, so it's easier for me to do it in class. It's a little bit different than some of the other quizzes. Okay, but yeah, don't worry about the equation right now. I will be going over that and examples of that on, probably not till Thursday, we'll, we'll see that. That won't be on the quiz either, so you don't have to worry about that. And then I put in exam three there as tentatively on the 29th. I'm hoping that we get it there. I sort of wanted to get the third, third exam out of the way in March so that we get one uh, somewhere about halfway to two-thirds of the way through April. And that way you're not pushing them too close to the end. So I'm going to try to get it the 29th of, 29th of March, which is the last, our last class meeting in there. And then since I finally announced these, I put up the final exam times for you. So that's when we're scheduled for a final exam. That does not mean there's nothing else in between those. There's still lots of stuff to come. I just didn't want to write out the whole, fill the whole board with everything. But final exam is scheduled for Tuesday, the 8th of May, 11.30, right here. And that will be, it is a cumulative exam, but as I've mentioned, if you're going to study, when you're going to study for the exam, you're going to study the material after exam four, which will be the last probably two to three chapters of the, of the text. And then you'll study your previous four exams. So you don't have to go back through all the detail of everything. You'll need to look specifically just at those, at those materials. And then also, solar observations. Um, I did get four people turn them in, so I hope others are actually making them and didn't turn them in. But I did, if you looked on the grades, I did actually give the people who turned them in on time on last week when they were, last week ago when they were due, I actually gave five points extra credit for those who turned them in. So you should see an extra five points if you turned in solar observations on your, on your grading. 
But those, if you've been making them at 12.15, it should now be 1.15, so it should be an hour later since we set the clocks ahead. Or if you're making them at a different time, if you are making them at some other time, it should be one hour. One hour later, that way it'll be consistent for time. Yes? Right, and I think, I think I said it early on, I thought I corrected it, but I don't know if I did for this. Don't worry about that. If you've done it at 115, just go to 215. It means your numbers are going to be off, but they're all, if you keep doing it, they'll all be off the same amount. So you'll still be fine when you're doing the write-up, and I understand that I'm not, if you've been making them at 1215, I'm not, at 115, I'm not penalizing you because that was my fault. And I corrected it in the other class. Yes, Conrad? should have been, it should now be 115. But if you've been doing 115, go to 215, then you won't see this big jump when you try to graph them. So 1215 was correct, and then it should be, it should be 115 now. But if you've been doing them, and if you made them at 1215 or 115, then go on and keep making them at 215. So that'll keep your time consistent. It'll keep everything consistent. You're making them at the same time relative to the stars. I mean, the daylight savings time just switches our time. You know, we lose the hour, we gain the hour. It really doesn't have anything to do with astronomy. It's still, the sky is still the same at, you know, 115 at 12:15 local time. Yes. Um, I, I had some concern about the objects that we're supposed to be using. I'm mm-hmm. Right. Like a box, or a box is real good. Uh, things that are bad are things like water bottles, things that taper at the top. Because it's, you're casting, when you're casting the shadow, if you're looking at something that's tapered, and I'm going to go to an extreme here and just draw, eh, draw a triangle. Yeah. Not a very good triangle. But you're casting the shadow from right here, but you measure the length of your shadow from the base here. So if you're, if you're not doing something that's uniform, see where the shadow is being cast, you're missing this part of it. So the shadow is actually longer. The real shadow is actually longer than what you're measuring, so it's going to throw your numbers off. If you do something that's just a box, it'll work just fine. It'll work fine. It's convenient if you have it, the same object, and you don't have to keep measuring the height each time because it shouldn't change. But you're not required to. You can use something else. But you do want something that's very uniform. That's why you don't want to use this things that point. And I know I've had people use water bottles. And I always find out when I look at their numbers, they're always off a little bit. And I'm not going to penalize you for it. If you've been using one, it's OK. Your numbers are going to be off a little bit, and that's fine. But it is going, it is going to throw you off. OK. So any other, any other questions on that? So. That was my, I thought I, I thought I mentioned it this class. Maybe it was the other class I mentioned it to when it came up as to the timings. So that may have been the, may have been the problem. But if you've been doing them at 1.15, now go 2.15. So if you've been making them, just make them an hour later. And then everything will be consistent for the, for the end. OK? No? Questions? Questions? OK. All right, our picture of the day for today. Got some nice galaxies here actually a grouping of galaxies. There's a nice, beautiful spiral galaxy here. A lot like our, in a way, a lot like our own Milky Way. You see a bluish tinge towards the out, which is the very hot young blue stars that are formed. And a little more yellowish white towards the center where there's not as much gas and dust and there's not as much star formation going on. And as we'll be talking about this coming over the next couple of weeks, The stars that form first are the very big, bright blue stars, but they also don't live very long. So if stars have not formed recently in an area, 
then you're not going to see very many blue, you're not going to see a very much of a bluish tinge to it because there aren't any young stars there. They're all gone and dead. The other thing that you see is there's another galaxy down here that's actually, these two are actually interacting gravitationally and part of what this galaxy is doing, and if you can see a little bit of red to the top of that one, let me see if I can give you a, for a second there. See how it's a little, got a little bit of a reddish tinge almost coming out, and they think that might be something to do with the gravitation and the gravity of this big galaxy sort of affecting this, affecting this little one. But as you look around the image, there's a number of different galaxies here. You'll see a lot of big, big galaxies, but almost everything you're seeing in this image, I don't see too many really bright stars. There's not many bright stars. Most of what you're seeing is actually, are actually galaxies. The one thing you don't that actually is a little bit closer is right here, actually the streak coming through the, through the image. And not a shooting star, although it would look a little bit, look kind of similar to that. That's actually a satellite that happened to pass through while the image was being taken. And we have so many satellites up in orbit that it's not very uncommon for one to happen to pass through that, through that image. So, but again, most of what you're seeing here are galaxies. There's a lot of galaxies. There's some that are relatively close. These ones would be relatively close to us. There's other ones. Here's a little speck here that could be a, it's a, probably a good-sized galaxy that's much further away. Up here, a couple little faint galaxies, which again are much, much further away. So we're seeing, again, the whole universe is compressed when we look at it. When we look at it from Earth, we don't see, you know, we don't see the depth dimension to it. Everything just looks like it's pasted on the sky. But in reality, some of these objects are much, much closer in front of the other, in front of others. So let me give you some light back. That one, there we go. Wake everybody up, okay. So questions on our picture for today? No, 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 okay. Let's go on. We were on chapter 10. And we had just gotten to, the, we, had just, we were just looking at this one. We'd finished this slide up, I think, last time. I'll bring it back up again. Just skim through it because it sort of leads into what we're talking about, what we're going to come up to the next, for the next part of the chapter. But the radiation, and you see these curves may look familiar if we didn't forget everything over break, right? The black body curves were the perfect ideal radiators and the shape is always the same. What changes is where the peak is. So where this peak happens to occur tells us how hot the star is. A 3,000 degree star is cooler and peaks further towards the red. Red being this way and violet being that way on this. A, a star like the sun, or a little bit hotter, peaks closer to the bluish, or here in the yellowish green part of the spectrum. It's a little bit hotter than the sun, that's about 10,000 degrees. And an even hotter star at 30,000 degrees, the peak is way out in the ultraviolet. So it's emitting a lot of ultraviolet light and what we'll see, if you look at this, you see those two parts of the spectrum. There's two astronomers, when they measure the stars, look at specific bands of wavelength. They don't necessarily look at the whole spectrum, but we can look at just part of it. So you can look here at where the blue light is coming, how much blue light you're getting, and how much yellow light you're getting. When we look at a star like this, and we try to observe it, it's going to give us a bluish tinge. It's actually going to look slightly blue because it's emitting more blue light than anything else. More blue light, much less red light. Other stars in this range will look, tend to look white because they're emitting almost even across the spectrum. 
And these much cooler stars are emitting a lot of red light, maybe even peeking off in the infrared here, and emitting very little blue light. The blue light is dropping off very, very quickly. So we'll see, blue, you'll see red stars when we look at stars that are relatively cool. And we looked at an image of that a little over a week ago now where we saw the constellation of Orion and we saw the bright red star Betelgeuse in the upper left and we saw the blue star Rigel in the lower right. And that's the same thing that's happening here. If we looked at the spectrum of Betelgeuse, it would peak something like this. So it would be dominated by the red part of the spectrum. If we looked at a star like Rigel, it would be dominated by the blue part of the spectrum. And these are just some examples that are given here for each looking at the different ranges of temperatures that we might see in stars from about 3,000 degrees to about 30,000 degrees. So roughly the range of the stars and the color that you might see going from a red up through a very bright blue star, a very bright blue star. So those are just some examples of what you might see. Now we'd fin- say we finished up there last time. And then what we have, what really tells us more information, is the actual spectrum of the star. To actually split it into its entire spectrum, not just looking, trying to look at the black body curve. That's very general. It gives us an idea of the temperature. It can measure the temperature. But we can learn a lot more from the, spectral, from the spectra. And what we do is by looking at the spectra of the star, again, splitting it into the colors of the rainbow, then we can actually determine and we actually classify stars that way and they're divided into a set of classes O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. These are the hottest stars and these are among the coolest stars. Now you gotta love the way they're set up, right? Makes perfect sense, right? That if you're going to classify stars and give them letters, you'd use you'd go O B A F G K M, right? No, maybe go A B C D E F G, something that makes a little bit more sense. That that is how it was done originally. When they were classified originally, astronomers looked at the spectra and they classified similar spectra together. And what they did was the ones that looked the smoothest, that didn't have the very fewest features in them, they classified as A stars. And then as they added more and more features into them, they'd go towards B, C, D, E, F, G, so on down to L, M, N, O, and beyond. What we found out later is that there was, that was just done visually. It's just how the spectrum appeared. So it had nothing to do with anything physical going on in the stars. So it didn't, it didn't have anything to do with temperature. You would have had A stars would have been somewhere in the middle. And then you would have gone to slightly hotter stars. And then you would have gone down to cooler stars. And you go back up to hot stars. So it didn't make a physical sense. We didn't know that at the time. When this was being done a little over 100 years ago now, late 1800s, early 1900s, when this classification was going on, it was purely on how the spectrum looked. So we just looked at the spectrum. And I think, here they are. So here they are again. Here's the spectrum. So you'd split the star up into its light. And you'd see some of them had a lot of lines, some of them had fewer. When you got down to the M stars, it had lots and lots of lines. And what they classified, again, the primary classification was how smooth the spectrum was and by how strong the hydrogen lines were. And A stars also have the strongest hydrogen. So they looked like they had the strongest, A stars here had the strongest hydrogen. So 
So strongest hydrogen lines. And then, as you went either direction from the A stars, the hydrogen lines got weaker and weaker. So you'd see less and less of hydrogen as you went, to each, as you went in either, any direction from it. So some of the hydrogen ones are labeled there. You can see hydrogen in the red way off to the edge. And you can maybe see how it's relatively bright here. And it starts to fade. It's not quite as distinct as you go further and further down. And you'll see that other elements tend to appear and disappear as you go through the different spectral classes. That is simply an artifact of the temperature of the stars. So it has nothing to do with what the star is made up of. Every star is made up of the same thing. 90% hydrogen, 10% helium, and a splattering of everything else. So if you're just counting the number of atoms, you know, 90 out of 100 are hydrogen, 9 point something are helium, and whatever is left over, that 100th one is whatever else you throw in. The composition of all the stars is pretty much the same. There's very little change. The reason the spectra look different is because the temperatures are different. And when you get to hydrogen here, or when you look at hydrogen in these stars here, in these middle temperature stars, it turns out that that's just the perfect temperature to excite the hydrogen atom and cause it to glow. It's just the perfect temperature. If you make it too hot, remember hydrogen is a proton with an electron orbiting it. And when that electron jumps up and down between energy levels, it causes these spectral lines. Cause it to jump up and down between the energy levels causes the spectral lines. Well, if the star is too hot, you can actually take this electron and you know, strip it off. It can be stripped off. You can have enough energy in that star if it's hot enough to rip that electron off the atom. And in that case, if the electron isn't there, the hydrogen atom has no electrons. It's got no electron to jump up and down between the energy levels, and you're never going to see. You're not going to see hydrogen lines. So they'll get weaker and weaker as you go towards cooler and cooler temperature, or towards higher and higher temperatures. Sorry, I'll come back and do cooler in a minute because all the hydrogen's being ionized. It's been stripped of its electron, and it has no way to jump between energy levels. When you look towards cooler stars, and you go cooler and cooler, something similar happens, except you're not stripping the electron off the atom, but you're not getting hot enough to actually excite the atom. If you remember, the hydrogen has different energy levels, and it had a ground state. If we look at them this way, that's where the electron wants to be in the ground state. And there was a second, level, a second level, and a third level, and a fourth level. The ones we see, the visible lines, all came from this level. So when you get absorption, when an electron is in this level, and a photon comes and moves it up one or two levels, then that would be absorbing the light. And, it would dis- and, that would, and that would cause the dark lines that we're seeing in the spectra here. But in order to get it to this level, you have to have enough energy to first move it up from the ground level, because that's where it wants to be. It's always going to go back to the ground level. And if you have a very, very cold star, you don't have enough energy. You can't get it up to that next level. It, you, know, you don't have enough energy to shake it and to get, cause the energy to increase to put it up in that level. If there's no electrons in that level, then you're not going to see the hydrogen lines. So you see with all the spectral lines, and hydrogen is just the one example I've given, there'll be a certain temperature where they're the strongest, and then they will get weaker and weaker if you go temperature is much too hot, 
They disappear if the temperature is much too cold. They disappear. But that peak will depend on the specific element. Hydrogen happens to peak around 10,000 degrees. That's just the perfect temperature to put a lot of those electrons into this state where we're going to see them. If it's too hot, they're all gone. They're either in higher levels or they're stripped off the atom. And if it's too cold, they're sitting down in the ground state and there's nothing else that's going to happen to them. The other thing that you'll see here is that when you get down to the very coolest star, you actually get molecules. So in very, very cool stars, you can actually get spectra of molecules. Now molecular spectra are very complicated compared to the atomic spectra that we've looked at. There's many more energy levels and you can see how many more lines you get here when you get to this very cool star, something like Betelgeuse. Very, very large number of lines. But these molecules are only visible in the very coolest stars. So it means that because you have them only visible in the coolest stars, that they don't exist. So the molecules actually can't exist. If you try to form two molecules, put two atoms together, give me one second, then the, the, the heat, the extense heat will rip them apart. So if you tried to form them in a very hot star, they'd just be torn apart before you could actually ever see the lines. Yes, sir? So like a red giant then, would that show more molecules? A red giant, any cool star, red giant, red dwarf would show the same kind of spectra. But yes? You see a lot of molecules. Now you're not going to see very complex molecules. You're going to be seeing very basic molecules. And one of the common ones, titanium oxide is one that's very common in stars. Titanium and oxygen together. Very common. You don't see complicated, you don't see very complicated. You're not going to see organic molecules, you know, chains of molecules in a star. Still way too hot for those. We do see them in the depths of space. You know, in much colder, much colder areas, you actually can get, you know, big, big organic molecules actually can form. But yeah, they would form in, in that, in those types of, any, any cool star. So any cool red giant, red supergiant star, or even just a little red, tiny red dwarf star would show the same kind of thing. The spectrum would be essentially, essentially the same. It just depends on the temperature. It doesn't depend on whether it's a big star or a little star. So here's the classes again. In, Okay, this is a table 10-2 from your textbook, and it's just really showing you which lines are associated with each spectral class. So A stars pretty much is the very strong hydrogen. As you go away from A, either it's hotter or cooler, the hydrogen stars, the hydrogen lines start to fade out. As you get towards hotter and hotter stars, you start to see lines of helium. Helium is even more tightly bound than hydrogen, so it's even harder to excite it. It takes a higher temperature. So we start to see helium lines in the hot and hotter stars. Ionized helium means helium, but we've already ripped off one electron. That requires even higher temperatures, because we not only have to excite the helium, but we have to take one of the electrons completely off and rip it off the atom. So now you have a helium with two protons, one electron. That's a completely different spectrum than, than the regular helium with two protons and two electrons. Completely different spectrum. And that we see only in the very hottest stars because it takes a high temperature in order to strip off that electron. When you go towards cooler stars, you start to see uh, some of the heavier elements start to, the hydrogen, hydrogen disappears. You don't really see helium lines. They're there, but they're incredibly faint, especially when you're looking at a distant star. And you start to see things like uh, metals. Again, metals is almost everything else in, else, else in astronomy. Some that are, so other than hydrogen or helium, so you see some metals that are neutral, some that have been ionized a little bit. 
you can ionize things like oxygen a lot easier than you can ionize helium. You can ionize things like iron. It's a lot easier to strip off that one outer electron when there's a whole bunch of them. And when you get down to the others, you start to see much more, many more lines of the neutral atoms and you start to see the molecules. The cooler the star gets, the, worse, the stronger those molecular lines actually get. Now, I'm looking for this, what I expect you to know on it. I mean, I want you to know where the hydrogen is strong. I want you to know why it gets, goes off on either side, why helium is stronger only in the hot stars, and why you see the other side. I'm not going to give you a test on you know, where is the carbon line strong specifically. The hydrogen is the only one I ask you to know a little bit, you know, pr- roughly where it, where it is, why the molecules get strong in the coolest stars, and why they're not visible in the hottest stars. So I'm not going to ask you specifically details of this. I'm not going to ask you to identify a specific star. But I want you to know the general pattern. The classification list, OBAFGKM. And then what roughly what line, where are you going to see? If I asked you where you're going to see the helium lines and I gave you three, three or four star classes, I'd expect you to be able to tell me which, which one. OK. That Stellar temperatures, that's what we were finishing up last time. Stellar sizes, how big is a star? Very, very difficult to determine. It is very hard to get the size of a star because even in the biggest telescopes, there's very few stars that we can actually get a size to. This is actually an image of one. This is Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse happens to be a very large red supergiant star, so it's tremendous in size. There's our orbit, Earth's orbit to scale. So if Betelgeuse were where the sun is, we'd be inside the star. So we'd be orbiting around inside that star right now. So that's how big this star is. It's also relatively close to us. So we can actually map out some contours and get a rough size. That still takes a lot of detail to be able to get to determine the size of a star. And that only works to actually see them, to actually see a star and get an image of a star. There's only a handful of stars that we can do that for. To determine how big a star is, we have to use more indirect methods for most, most of them. Just because of the distances are so large. The distances are so great that even though these stars are tremendous in size, you know, bigger than the Earth's orbit, you know, not just bigger than the Sun, but bigger than the entire orbit of the Earth, they're so far away that they still, to most telescopes, will appear like a tiny point of light. There's only a handful of them like these where we can actually get an image and you can take a picture of a star. You see why you don't see very many pictures of stars. We show pictures of galaxies. We show pictures of nebulae. We don't really show pictures of stars. Well, there's one of the best pictures of a star. Not very exciting, right? You know, it's not going to make the picture of the day, right? But we can use other indirect methods to determine them. Yuck, I know. We can calculate them. We can calculate them. We can sort of roughly check out the size because there's a relationship between the luminosity of a star, its radius, and its temperature. You don't have to do a calculation with it, don't worry. But we know that the the radius depends on the luminosity and depends on the temperature of the star. So if you look at a very, at the certain temperature, you know that a star is so many times brighter than the sun, and it's so many times, but, but so many times cooler. You know, a star can be things that, some of these stars can be hundreds, thousands, millions of times brighter than the sun. And we can, if we can determine what their temperature is, 
we can then get an idea, there's a way to actually calculate what the radius of the star is. So by determining the luminosity, temperature was real easy. I just showed you how to determine the temperature. Luminosity is a little bit tougher to get. If you remember, luminosity is the true brightness of the star, how much energy it is really emitting. Not just how bright it looks in the sky. That's easy to measure. I can measure how bright it looks to be. But the luminosity depends on the distance. So if we can determine the distance, which is another difficulty, then we can determine the size of a star using this method. Again, you don't have to be able to calculate it, just knowing that there's a relationship between the two is what, is what I'm looking for. That if you had two stars of the same temperature, then you can tell the luminosity, which one's going to be bigger by their luminosity. Or two stars of the same luminosity, you can tell you know, by, by looking at the temperatures. A couple different types of stars. There are giant stars, which are between 10 and 100 times the size of the sun. So they're bigger than the sun, but they're not gigantic. They're giants, but they're not you know, the humongous stars like Betelgeuse that I was looking, we were looking at earlier. They're pretty, they're real good size though, you know, 10 times bigger than the sun, 100 times bigger than the sun. There are also supergiant stars. Those are the real big ones. Their radii are more than 100 times the sun's. So, could be 100 times the sun, could be 1,000 times the sun, you know, 10,000 times. You know, what's the limit? It go, they, go, they can be incredibly big compared to the sun. There are stars that would fill and cover you know, Mercury's orbit, Venus's orbit, Earth's orbit. We just looked at Betelgeuse would fill out to about Earth's orbit or a little bit bigger. There are stars that are big enough that would actually fill out to Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. There are stars that are that tremendous size, if you were to put them at the center of our solar system, there would only be a couple planets left out there still orbiting. So our sun will eventually become one of the, uh, be, eventually become a giant and a supergiant star. Not one of these most tremendous ones most likely, but it will become a very big star. It will swallow up Mercury, Venus, Earth, probably Mars. It will get that big eventually. You have five billion years to wait, so exams and final exam are still as scheduled. But it will get that tremendously big. It will get that big. Eventually. But again, that's at the end of its life, and that's what we'll be talking about over the, over the, coming, over the coming weeks. But there, are, there is a big range in sizes that we get for the stars. Big range. You, have, you also have dwarf stars. I should have said I kind of skipped over that. The giant and the supergiant, those are the big stars. Those are the ones everybody's fascinated by. Dwarf stars are about the size Eh, about the size of the sun, maybe a little bit bigger, maybe twice as big or three times as big, maybe half the size, maybe a quarter of the size. So there's a pretty good range, range there in terms of the, dwarf, of the dwarf stars, but they're about, eh, roughly about the size of the sun. There's many bigger stars. There's also very tiny stars. There are stars that are incredibly tiny compared to the sun. Question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, now, and you were saying that the sun will eventually become mm -hmm. Supergiant. Do all stars go through all the like different phases of going from like you know like a dwarf star that's about the size of the sun or less to going and turning into something like a supergiant? Pretty that's pretty much. Yes, okay. there would be some very very big stars that might start out even almost a giant size might start out at ten times. Some of the very very biggest stars might start out that big and then go on from there. But most stars, the typical star that you see, will go through this range. It will be a dwarf star at some point, and then it will change into a red giant, change into a supergiant, and eventually end up as something very tiny. And I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to pause this for one minute because I want to go back and do one other thing here for you. Kind of show this.
Not back to that picture. But yesterday's picture of the day was actually a nice little scale of the universe. And I'm going to zoom out through this. But it actually starts with human and you can zoom out through a bunch of different sizes. But if we go out to the stars, we get to planets there. Oops, I missed one, didn't I? Should have gone back in, sorry. I zoomed back and forth. There's the first, there's the smallest star, one of the smallest. It's called a neutron star. You see that right there? Give you an idea of the size. There's, you know, Rhode Island next to it. So, incred incredibly tiny. You know, Rhode Island looks real big there, but it's the smallest state. And if you go, but if you zoom out a little bit more, that's, the small, that's as small as a star can be. So that's, that can be the size of a very small state. If we zoom out a little bit further, there's Sirius B is another star. That's closer to the size of the Earth, a little bit bigger than the Earth. So there are stars that are the Earth size. These two are dead stars. So they're not stars in the traditional sense. They're the remnants that's left over after a star has gone through its whole life. So depending on how much mass it has, it might become a star like Sirius B, we call a white dwarf, about the size of the Earth. Or it might become a star like the neutron star that's about the size of Rhode Island, so real tiny. Now if we go further out, we'll start to see the stars here. Now we're looking through the planets. There's a few stars starting to see. There's Proxima Centauri, the closest star to us. We haven't, got, well, there's the sun. we haven't gotten to the sun. There's the sun right here, actually. So there's our sun. So this star is actually really tiny compared to us. There's Jupiter. It's only a little bit bigger than Jupiter. So it's a relatively small star. And these are the, these are the tiniest stars we're looking at here. Now this is a regular star star. This is an actual star like the sun. It's producing energy. It's fusing hydrogen into helium at its core, which is what our definition of a star is. But it's very, very tiny it's only a little bit bigger than Jupiter. If Jupiter had a few times more the mass than it has, it would actually be a, would be a star. And you'll see a few other small stars as we go out a little bit here and come into the... as we go out, there's our Sun and Alpha Centauri. And then we're going to start looking at the bigger stars. So there's stars, you may recognize some of the names. They're Spica, Regulus, some of the springtime stars. Capella and Arcturus. Now our sun's sort of fading away, way down there in the center right now as we get to these much bigger, much bigger stars. Polaris is a very large whitish star. Aldebaran and Taurus is a very big red star. You get Rigel, Deneb. Antares is a tremendous supergiant star. And then you get out to some of these largest stars. You can see our sun has long since disappeared down there. You know, there it is. That's, that's not it. That's another star. So our sun, there's our sun. Just to give you an idea of how small it is, it disappears about there. And these other stars are that tremendous compared to the size of the sun. So if you look there, right here, these are, the, these are some of the biggest stars that we know of. And this image on the right is the Kuiper Belt. Kuiper Belt is that whole belt, that's where Pluto is and Eris and all those little objects out beyond Neptune. So if you can imagine taking one of these stars and putting it there, this isn't Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, this is Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. So many of those would actually fill out to the orbit of Saturn. 
So some of these stars, some of these most tremendous stars would actually fill the, fill the solar system out to the orbit of Saturn. P pretty big. I mean, compared to how small, I mean, sun, sun's long since disappeared way down in there. It's not even a pixel anymore. It's it, beyond, you know, smaller than a pixel. And then you can keep, if you want, I'm not going to go through the whole thing right now, but you can zoom this out. It'll go out through the entire universe. It'll go out to the edge of the observable universe. And you can zoom back in and you could actually go down to, you know, subatomic levels as well. So it was a nice little picture of the day. I wanted to show that just because I knew it fit in with the stars we were talking about as well today. But that was actually yesterday's. That was actually yesterday's picture, so you didn't, you didn't get that fun one. Let's see, we were here. So, but again, a big variety of sizes. And we determine them, again, pretty much through this method. It's only the couple, a handful of the largest stars that we can actually determine directly. We can actually see a size to the star. Most of them are determined indirectly by looking at the luminosities and the temperatures. So here's. Not quite as nice as the one we just looked at, but here's just kind of a size looking at some of the stars. Antares was there. Antares about 500 times the size of the sun. So putting it to scale there, you know, with the sun, the sun being right at this would be a speck at the center there. And then, you know, there's the distance to Mars' orbit. So this would actually be well, Antares would go well out beyond Mars, but some of those super hypergiants, as they're called, actually are much, much bigger. So. But there's a big variety. So you go for things that are 500 times the size of the sun to things that are you know, less than a tenth the size of the sun. Sirius B even smaller, but then as I said, Sirius B really isn't a star in the traditional sense, not by the definition of a star. But there's a big range in sizes. And we'll be looking at some of the, what happens with some of these stars, but the sun will eventually be something, you know, maybe similar, maybe not quite as big as that, but something similar. Got about five billion years to wait. You know, come back five billion years, see what the sun does. It'll become first. It'll become more of a giant star, just only get you know 40 times bigger, not quite you know 500 yet. It'll go through that stage, then it'll eventually go through a much bigger, a much bigger phase. Okay, Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. This is much of our, much of today and part of Thursday. We'll be talking about this. We'll go through a little bit on it today, and then I'm going to come back. Probably not today, probably Thursday. I'll go through it in a little bit more detail. HR diagram is one of the most important graphs in astronomy. For studying stars, it is the key to being able to understand the stars. And it is a graph of temperature on one axis. So you've got temperature here. And yes, astronomers are backwards, right? Hot stars are here. 30,000 degrees is on this side. 3,000 degrees is on that side, so the temperature numbers get smaller as you go to that from one side to the other. If you're doing it by spectral classes, which also works, O stars are the hottest stars, so it's O, B, A, F, G, K, M. And if you plot that against the luminosity, again, luminosity, how bright the star really is. Not how bright it looks in the sky, that doesn't matter, but how bright it really is. How much energy is it putting out relative to the sun? If you put it and the sun next to each other in space and looked at them both, would it be exactly the same? Like Alpha Centauri is pretty close. Would it be 100 times brighter? Like things like Vega, Capella, Aldebaran? Would it be 10,000 times brighter? Like Antares and Betelgeuse? Or would it be much fainter? You have to put them actually in the same spot in space and compare them. That depends on the distance. You've got to be able to determine that luminosity. Now, if you look at this graph, it doesn't look very exciting. 
just a few points plotted there, but it doesn't seem like there's no pattern. They're not all on a nice straight line, right? You know, you look for pa- when you look at a graph, you try to look for patterns, and there doesn't seem to be any here. You've got some stars in the upper left, some in the upper right. You've got one in the lower lower left. You've got a couple in the lower right. You've got a few in the middle. Seem to be a few gaps in there, but not nothing much. This is just a few. This is just a random sampling, sort of not even random, just some of the brighter stars that you see, and some of the nearby, some of the bright, some of the nearby stars. In order to really get a look at this, we have to look at it in more detail. And we'll, when we start to look at it and look at more stars, add more stars to it, we st- see patterns that start to emerge. So here's an example. Let's look at the 80 closest stars. So these are the 80 stars that are the closest to us. And if you notice here, there's our sun, right about in the middle of this line. It's got a shaded line going from upper left to lower right, which we call the main sequence. The main sequence is where most of the stars will we'll find out where most of the stars tend to occur. That's where the st- sun is right now, and that's where stars tend to spend most of their life. And in this case, in the closest stars to us, boy, we're a relatively bright star. Among those 80 stars, you know, there's Alpha Centauri is about as bright, maybe a little bit brighter than us. Procyon A. Altair and Sirius A. Those are the only stars among the 80 closest that are brighter than the sun. So the sun's a relatively bright star. Right? It's brighter than most of the stars that we see nearby. Most of the stars that we see nearby actually are incredibly faint. One one hundredth, one ten thousandth the brightness of the sun if we put them all to the same distance and much, much cooler. The other thing we see in this when we, when we look at it is that there's a couple, there are some stars that don't fall on the main sequence. So almost all of these stars, with a few exceptions here, fall on this line, again, going from down towards the bottom right and up towards the upper left. Not very many stars up here. We'll come back, we'll see more of those in the next image. But there are a few stars that end up down here in the white dwarf region. So they don't fit on the main, they don't fit the standard main sequence. They're too hot. So they're very hot. If to be a red dwarf star, they're much hotter than the red dwarf stars. But they're not bright enough to be you know, a main sequence star. They're not as bright as the main sequence stars that have the same temperature. So if we go back to think about that equation that we looked at that's related to the luminosity and the temperature and the size, these stars are much, much fainter than a similar main sequence star of the same temperature. So they're much smaller they're going to be very, very tiny stars. And that's they get their name, white dwarfs. White dwarfs, white because they're hot. So their light tends to look sometimes bluish, sometimes white, not really getting down into the red. So bluish to white region of the, of the spectrum. And they're very tiny. They're about the size of the Earth. Maybe a little bigger, but about roughly the size of the Earth. So extremely tiny stars. And they've got sketched in here for you. Little dashes show where the stars of similar size. So here's stars that are about the size of the sun. One radius of the sun is about here. Most of the stars on the main sequence are about the size of the sun. Until you get down to the very end here where they start to get much, much smaller. And until you get to this other end where they start to get several times bigger. But most of the stars on the main sequence, they might be a little bit bigger than the sun. That doesn't mean that Sirius is the same size as the sun. It might be two or three times bigger. But it's close. 
So we can get some idea of sizes. So pretty much the stars on the main sequence are the same size. But these ones down here, you know, not even the tenth the size of the sun, you're talking much, much smaller. You're talking the size of the Earth. And we can determine that, again, sort of that, the, that equation that I said. You can look at things, and if they're the same temperature, two stars that are both 10,000 degrees, you know, here, here's Sirius A and what, one of these white dwarfs here, about 10,000 degrees. That means they're the same temperature. But because they're such vastly different luminosities, and again, that's the intrinsic luminosity, the one has to be so much smaller. Now that's if we look at the closest stars to us. So that's one way to get a sample of stars. Pick out the 80 stars, you know, if you're going to sample people, you can pick out the 80 people closest to you to do a survey, right? Not necessarily the best way to do it. Or you could pick out some of the brightest stars. So here's the 100 brightest stars. Looks a little bit different. Now all of a sudden we've gone from being a relatively bright star to being just about nothing. Right? Here's our sun. The sun hasn't moved. It's still in the same spot. But we have all these stars that are way up on this part of the main sequence now. A whole bunch of stars up here in the red, what we call the red giant region. And our sun is pretty much the, if we look at the 100 brightest stars in the sky, and our sun is one of those because it's so close, the sun is nothing. The sun is actually a very faint star. So you have to go back and forth. Is the sun a relatively bright star? It is compared to the ones closest to us. It's one of the brightest stars. Or is it a relatively faint star? Well, if you just go out and look at the bright stars at night, and you recognize there's some names there, Rigel, Vega, Altair, Procyon, Antares, Betelgeuse, that I've mentioned, those are some of the brightest stars that you see in the sky. Well, we're nothing compared to those. So we have then the red giants. Red giants off to the right. Again, they are comparable in temperature to these stars down here, the cooler stars. but they're much, much brighter, so much, much larger. They might be 10, 100, 1,000 times the size of the sun, much bigger than the sun. Same thing with the blue giants. The blue giants are the stars that are just up off the edge of the main sequence here that are slightly bluer. So they're very, very hot stars, sort of at the upper edge of this main sequence. They're starting to get much, much bigger, and they may be 10, 50 times bigger than the sun. You saw some of, some of those blue giant stars. So really what it tells us, and if you think about it, if you're taking that sample, you're better off sampling 10 people or 100 people who happen to be close to you, that you're just walking around, the 100 people close to you. Is that a better random sample than, 100, than taking the 100 brightest, 100 big stars to do a sample? Probably is. You could have some biases on both because depending on where you're taking your, taking your uh, survey, it might you know, be biased. If you're taking it all at hack, you might get a certain bias, right? Just because everybody is associated with the college to one extent or another. But you'd probably get a better overall sample if you were just going down the road and interviewing 10, people, 10 or 100 people than you would just by picking out the brightest, the biggest stars people to, to interview. So these bright stars are really bright not because they're close to us. Most of these stars are incredibly far away. If these stars were close, if these were among the 80 stars, they'd be bright. You know, you'd be, some of these you'd almost be seeing during the day. They are that bright. Some of these things are just many hundreds and thousands of light years away. So they still look very bright to us, but not near as bright as they could be if they were closer. Couldn't that be blinding? If, if, we were, if they were as close to 
If they were as close to us as the sun, yes. It would be, you know, our eyes might have adapted differently instead of seeing visible light. Maybe you, some of those you'd see something, you see things differently. You know, you might have developed some other kind of shading or something for if it was that if it was that bright. Of course, with some of them, it wouldn't have made a difference because we'd have had to have been further away from the sun. Otherwise, you know, if we're here with these, well, we're orbiting inside the sun anyway, so it's it gets a little even at 3,000 degrees, it gets a little bit toasty. Okay. Now, if we do a lot of them, now do 20,000 stars, get an even better sample. Then you start to see the patterns coming coming out. You get a lot of stars on the main sequence, the whole edge, whole range of them here, up there to middle. And then you get a lot that are coming off here into the, red, into the red giant region. Now we'll look at some of the details of this later on, but the pattern that you'll see is the same. There are lots of areas of the HR diagram where there aren't many stars. There were the white dwarfs down here, but you don't get very many stars in between the main sequence and the white dwarfs. You don't get very many stars over in this portion of the HR diagram. You don't get too many up. Certain areas are just pretty empty. You don't get a lot of stars there. When you count the stars, if you put it, putting them all and plotting them all, you'd end up with about 90% of the stars on the main sequence. So most of the stars, if you just pick out a random star in the sky, it would pretty much get a 90% chance that it's going to lie somewhere on the main sequence. Whether it's a real cool star or a real hot star, doesn't matter, but a 90% chance that it would live there. And a star spends about 90% of its life on the main sequence. Seems to fit evenly, right? About 90% of the stars there, the sun will spend about 90% of its life on the main sequence. Eventually the sun will move off over here, but there's not very many stars there because those stages don't take as long. When the sun becomes a red giant, that doesn't last as long as it does on the main sequence. The sun might last 10 billion years on the main sequence, but it only may last a few hundred million to a billion years as a red giant star. It'll last a much shorter time. So you're only happening to catch those stars there that happen to be going through that phase at this instant. You wouldn't always necessarily see. You'd only have a 1 in 10 chance of getting it there. If you're just picking a random star, you know, 90% of its life is going to be on the main sequence. 1 out of 10, you're happening to see elsewhere in the diagram. The only one that would last longer would be the white dwarf area. Because once a star becomes a white dwarf, it's just the dead core of a star, essentially. And it's not doing anything. It's not going anyplace. So once a white dwarf forms, it's there. All it can do is slowly cool off. So over time, it would very slowly cool off, but they'd be there. The problem is that they are very faint, and they're very hard to see. You know, their luminosities are only you know, a thousandth that of the sun, maybe. A dead, dead star. A, a star. When we say star, it means it's fusing hydrogen. We talked about hydrogen fusion in the sun. That's how the sun makes its energy. That's what I, what I mean a star, that's what I consider a star. A dead star is what's left over when a star has stopped fusing. So it's, it has no energy source inside. All it's doing, it's, it was hot, it was that hot core, it fused all of its energy, it's done, and now it's just cooling off. And it will take many billions of years to cool off. But that's, that's what I mean by a dead, a dead star. It's just a core, the remnant that's left over after the, sun, the star, the sun, has gone through its life. So 90% of them are on the main sequence, 9, 10% are red giants, and about 1% are white dwarfs. So very few down here. Not because there are so few, just because they're hard to find. A white dwarf just sitting out there in space, many hundreds of light years away, 
isn't really isn't visible to us. You know, if you don't know where to look for it, you're not you're not going to see it. We sometimes you see them. A lot of them we saw. You saw Sirius B, Procyon B. Those are actually parts of a binary system. So there's actually star Sirius has a star orbiting it that's a white dwarf. So there's actually two stars there. So it makes it easier to find it when you're looking at a star. You can see that it's being that something is orbiting it. Okay. Now, we'll come back to the HR diagram. I'm going to go through that in a little bit more detail after I finish up the rest of this chapter. I'm going to come back and do that before we go on to the beginnings of stars. So, we're going to finish up this chapter and talk about distances. Now, distances, I mentioned before, we had parallax. Parallax is the only good way to directly measure the distance to a star. So that's the only way I can measure, I can measure it. And I do that by measuring the shift of one of a nearby star relative to a more distant star. Spectroscopic parallax is another method that astronomers use to determine distances. It's not related to parallax, in the, uh, it's no, no, not like a method of parallax. You don't have to look at things at two different points and look at shifts. It's called spectroscopic parallax in terms of that parallax is a way to measure distances. It's a spectroscopic way to measure distances. So we can use the spectrum of a star to determine its distance. And we're going to start seeing that we had, we had, we're going to start building this distance ladder as to how we determine distances in astronomy. And it's essentially a ladder because you need to go through different steps in order to get to the next step. Spectroscopic parallax really does us no good if there were not stars we could measure parallax for. If there were not stars we could really measure the distance for. What we do for spectroscopic parallax is we measure the star's apparent magnitude. Remember, that's the real easy one to get. Apparent magnitude is how bright the star appears to be in the sky. So I can put a telescope on the star, put a detector in there that detects how many, how many photons you're getting every second from that star, and we can measure a magnitude for it. We can measure a brightness. So that's very easy to measure. I can go measure that for all the stars in the sky very, very easily. The absolute magnitude is the hard one. And if we split that light into a spectrum, a little bit more work, I can determine the spectral class. We can look at the spectral lines and we can determine what spectral class it is. If we know what that, once we know what that spectral class is, so we've determined it's O, B, A, F, G, K, M. Then we can use that to estimate the luminosity. So if you remember, I'm going to come back to this here, but let me put it up here. We had our HR diagram with the main sequence. If I can determine what the spectral class is, so I can say it's a G star, then that G star is, has some luminosity. If we know what the spectral class is, I can use this graph to then tell me exactly what the luminosity is. If we know what the luminosity is, we know how bright it really is, how much energy it's really emitting based on this main sequence, then I can determine the distance. I know how bright it appears to be. I know how bright it really is, how much energy it's really putting out. If I know those two things, through applications of the inverse square law, you can get the distance. So we can determine how far away that star is. It does depend on knowing that this main sequence, it depends on knowing some of the luminosity so that we can tell really what this main sequence is. Where is it? Where is it shifted? It's very hard to tell that if you, don't, if you didn't know any distances, we'd have no way to determine that. 
we'd have no way to determine what, you know, that this luminosity was correct. We need a few stars that we can actually measure parallax to to sort of calibrate the scale. As long as you can get a few, you're good. And you can use this then to determine distances to any stars. Once you have this all well calibrated, you can measure the spectral class of a star and say, okay, I know what spectral class it is, I know what its luminosity is, I know how bright it is, and I can therefore determine its distance. So we can actually determine the distances to a star that way. So it's another method now of getting distances to a star. And this works a lot further out. You know, parallax was only those stars that are closest to us. There's a couple hundred or two hundred that we can do that are close enough where we can measure a parallax. Spectroscopic parallax will work as long as I can get a spectrum of the star. As long as there's enough light coming from the star that I can take a spectrum of it, I can, I can do that. So distance-wise, we have, well, the other direct method that we really can't use for stars is what we call radar ranging, and that only works for the very closest objects to us. I can determine the distance to the moon by bouncing a radar signal off of it. Venus, Mars, and that's about it. Really doesn't work outside of about an astronomical unit, so it only is the very, very closest objects that we can determine. Stellar parallax works to about 200 parsecs, so a few hundred stars that are closer enough to us we can measure using parallax. And that's the direct method. We need that step in order to get to this one. If we don't have this step, we can't use this one. But this will get us out, you know, what? About 500 times further. We can go from 200 parsecs out to about 10,000 parsecs by using spectroscopic parallax. Because I don't need to measure the shift of the star as the Earth orbits. All I need to measure is the spectrum of the star. As long as I can get enough light from that star, put it across, and I can actually see a spectrum and determine what the spectral class is, determine whether it's OBAFGKM, then I can determine the distance to it. So it's, it's a big jump in being able to determine distances. Once we were able to calibrate this to find enough stars, enough parallax to be able to determine this, to be able to determine where the main sequence actually lies and what the luminosities are on this scale, then I can use that for any other star, even if it's further away than 200 parsecs, to determine its distance. Now, 10,000 parsecs is a small fraction of our galaxy. That doesn't really get us much out in the universe. Our galaxy is about 80, oh, what is it? About, no, it's light years, 30, 000, about 30,000 parsecs across. So that maybe gets us out through a third of our galaxy. Doesn't get us to any, any, other, any other galaxies. You're not going to be able to measure the distance to another galaxy that way. There's another several steps coming that we'll get through over the, over, the coming, over the coming weeks that we use to determine other distances and we use to calibrate to go further and further out. But we have to do it as a ladder. We can't, there's no way to determine, we can't measure a parallax for these distant stars and galaxies. That's our only direct method, so we have to go in stages. This is the closest, then for many stars in our galaxy we can determine distances this way. Now one of the problems with the spectroscopic parallax, if you remember, it wasn't quite so simple as this, was it? We didn't have just a main sequence, you also had a red giant branch. So if I'm looking at this star, well, is it that luminosity? Or is it this luminosity? You know, which one is correct? How do we know the difference? Because the spectral class, remember the spectral type will only tell you the temperature. So it could be 
you could measure that temperature and you could say, okay, it's a G star, it's a star like the Sun, but it doesn't tell us necessarily whether it's a main sequence star or a giant star or a supergiant star. It doesn't tell us which of those it actually is. So what, they've, what we've done is we've devised another method and that, in fact, a couple steps here. These star, we've sort of subdivided this. So we have the O stars, O, B, A, F, G, K, M. We subdivide these. So actually, you have a G0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. So you actually subdivide it to get more detail. So instead of saying it's just a G star, our sun is actually a G2. So it's in the G range and it's you know, not zero, not one, it's not the hottest of the G stars, but it's close to that. So you can subdivide, you subdivide each of these the same way. So just makes it a little bit finer, you can be able to see a little bit finer detail. The other thing that we do is we add what we call a luminosity class. And really the ones to worry about are, there's class one, our supergiants. Class three, our giants. And class five are dwarfs. Yes, there's a two and a four. Astronomers didn't skip them. If you look on here, yeah, there's a two and a four, and the ones are subdivided. Those are the three main, those are the three main things to worry about. There's supergiants, the biggest stars, there's giants, and there's dwarfs. So when we look at the spectrum and we can look at it, and one of the examples is given here is by looking at the lines and how broad those lines are, we can then determine not only the temperature of the star, but we can determine what we call its luminosity class. So our sun would be a G2, that's its spectral class, and a luminosity class 5. It's a dwarf star. Sun's a relatively small star compared to all these giants and supergiants that we were looking at. So when we actually classify a star, it needs something like that. It's actually, you know, a G star, but you subdivide it, so you might say it doesn't go from G to K, it goes G0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and then goes G9, and then G9 goes into K0. And then K will go down to K9 and M0, and so on. And if you look at the lines, one of the ways astronomers tell the difference is by looking at the spectral lines. When you actually look at a profile of them, a main sequence star will have much thicker, much broader lines. And another, another star cooler, I mean a, a supergiant star would have much fainter, much fainter, not much fainter, I'm sorry, much narrower lines. That has to do with how dense the atmospheres are. So the atmosphere of a supergiant star, it's real big, but there's not much, there's not a lot out there. Maybe real big and bright, but there's not a lot of material out there. The sun's atmosphere is, very, is relatively dense, and there's a lot of atoms bouncing around against each other, and it broadens the lines. There's a higher pressure at the surface. When you get to the surface of a supergiant star, it's so diffuse that you don't have that many particles banging into each other, so the lines tend to be narrower. The narrower the lines, the bigger the star of the same temperature. There's another way you can also change the widths by temperature, but don't need to worry about that right now. So you can just look, you can look at the lines to be able to tell the difference and tell why, tell that a star, is it a class five? Is it a class three? Is it a class one? Or maybe it's something in between in a two and a four. So that's the complete spectral classification. If you're going to determine a star, it might be a G2, five. Or it might be a M2, one. 
which would be a very cool supergiant star. M2 would be a very cool star. Ones, the very, very brightest, would be way up here. That would be a very large, cool supergiant star. See, that's, that's the classifications that you'd use. You'd use the, the letter, subdivide that with the number, and then the Roman numeral after just tells you what the luminosity, where it falls, which of these lines on the above, either on the main sequence or which of the branches it ends up falling upon. So here's an example showing how to distinguish the two. That you'll have roughly the same surface temperature for these stars. Might be some slight variations. But a main sequence star, a red giant, and a red supergiant. So all roughly the same temperature. Very little change there, only a couple hundred degrees. But if you look at the luminosity and the radius, there's a big difference. This main sequence star in the K range is smaller than the sun. So it's a relatively small star. This one and its luminosity is much less than the sun. So it's, luminos it's, all, it's much, much smaller than the sun. It's not emitting as much energy and it's tinier. If you look at a giant star, now we're a lot bigger than the sun. We're 20 times larger than the sun and 100 times more luminous. So much, much bigger than the sun, much, much brighter. And the supergiant star, again, even bigger, 100 times, 100, 100 and some times the size of the sun, and thousands of times brighter, many thousands of times brighter. So that's why we can see, you see how the luminosity goes up so much with these, with these giant stars? That's why we can see them over much larger distances. This star is much fainter than the sun. If it's not close to us, it's going to be hard to see. It's hard to see those very faint stars just because they're not putting out a lot of energy. This star can be halfway across the galaxy and still look bright because it's putting out so much energy. It's putting out thousands of times more than the sun. You know, if the sun was putting out 4,000 times, you mentioned before, if the sun was putting out 4,000 times the amount of energy, we wouldn't want to go outside during the day, right? Well, wait till night to go out. Probably would be, we'd have other issues with that. It would burn off the whole atmosphere and we'd have other troubles, but. You know, just ignore that and just look at the brightness side. You know, you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to look at it. Even a hundred times brighter. Sun's bright enough as it is. Okay. Now the last thing we want we can determine about stars is their mass. Mass is another hard one to determine. In fact, it's even harder than distance. Mass really requires not only one star, but two. You have to have a binary star system. You have to have two stars close to each other that are orbiting each other. And if you can do that, then you can determine what the mass is. And that's by looking at the orbits. Now you'll see three different types here. There's three types of binary stars. You have one that's called a visual binary. So that's part number A, up, that's letter A up here. And that's two stars. You can see the two stars. And if you take a picture of them, in one year here, there's 1948, 1955, 1960, 65, 70, 75. You can watch one star essentially orbiting around the other. So you can actually see the two stars and you can watch them orbiting. That's a relatively rare type of binary. The stars have to be far enough apart that we can see them. So we can see them separated. They can't be too close together. And they have to be close enough to us, too, so that we can see that. So relatively close stars, relatively widely separated stars, we can observe things like this. And it might take, what, that's about 30, about 30, 40, almost 40 years by the time it gets back to where it was, roughly. 
So it takes about 40 years to orbit. So it takes a long time to, for these stars to orbit each other. It might take you know, 40 years or more, depending on the actual orbits. And you need time to actually determine that orbit. Once you determine it, once you can figure out what it's, what it's, or how it's orbiting, how fast it's orbiting, and how far away from the other star it's orbiting, then we can get the mass very easily. And that's because we go back in Kepler's laws, right? A cubed equals p squared. I know that's way too far back, right? Kepler's third law told us that there was a relationship between the period of how long something orbited and how far away, what its, what its orbital distance was. Newton told us that if we went back and used that, that there was another way to do it that uses the same equation but actually allows us to determine the mass. It actually depends on the mass of the system. So it works fine. A cubed equals p squared works fine for the sun. But you've got to put a mass and some other constants and things in there. Don't worry about the numbers, but you can do it. It can be done to determine, once I determine the parameters of the orbit, how long it takes, 40 years, how far away it is, how many AUs away does it orbit? 50, 100, how far away is it? You can then determine the mass of that star. But you need a binary. You need two stars orbiting together. So that's one type. That's one that you can observe, visual, you can actually watch it. And the images to the right sort of show you that you take a picture here, you take a picture seven years later, you take a picture five years after that. You can see how the stars are changing position relative to each other. A second type of, one that, a second type of star that you see, or is binary, is called a spectroscopic binary. Spectroscopic binary, I can't see two stars. If I look at it, I see one star. So if the stars are too close together, my telescope can't resolve them. It can't separate them and see them as two stars. So, but what you'd see is that as you look at it, when as they're orbiting at one point, if they're orbiting around each other, at some point one star's moving towards you and one's moving away, right? And they go around and then they're doing the other thing. One's moving towards you and one's moving away and my arms don't go through each other so I can't keep twisting them around. But you'd have stars, so one, at one point they're going towards you and then they're going away and then they're going towards you again. That's going to cause a Doppler shift. So when we look at those lines, at a certain time you're going to see the star, for the brighter star's lines are shifted to the red. They're moving, it's moving away from you. A certain amount of time later, it's going to be blue shifted because it's moving towards you. That's going to constantly happen as these stars orbit each other. So you could actually determine the period of, the, of orbit from that. How long does it take this pattern of lines to go through its cycle? To go from completely red shifted to completely blue shifted and back. How long does it take to do that? We can determine the period. And if we can also determine roughly how far apart they are, Sometimes there's ways to determine that. That's a little bit harder to get in this method in, from a spectroscopic binder to actually determine the separations. But if we can determine that, then it just becomes the same problem. Once we have the period and we have the separation, we can determine the mass. The final one is what we call an eclipsing binary. Eclipsing binary means there's two stars. We can't see them as two stars again. So it's like a spectroscopic binary in that you can't see them as two stars. But you can see that one star passes in front of the other. So instead of them orbiting you know, whichever way they happen to be orbiting, they're orbiting so that one passes right in front of the other and blocks some of its light. It might be a smaller star, and it might only block part of the light. But if you watch the intensity, it'll get fainter for a certain amount of time while that star is passing in front of it. Then it will go back. Then there'll be a little bit of a dip now when the other star is disappearing, when the little star is being hidden. And you get a pattern there. 
that's another nice one. You can determine not only how big the orbit is, but you can determine the period. How long does it take it to go from dim, dimmest point here to dimmest point here? How long does that take? We can determine that very easily and then get a mass. Those are the only ways we can get a mass of a star. If you have a star there all by itself, if Betelgeuse is not a binary star, we have no way to get its mass. Other than comparing it to other stars that happen to have a binary and saying, well, it's kind of like this star, which is you know, 100 to 50 times the mass of the sun, so maybe it's 50 times the mass of the sun. There's no direct way. If it's not in a binary system, there is no other way to determine the mass. Now, we'll continue using this for galaxies. You can use this for galaxies. The same method actually works for galaxies. You can determine the orbits. You can determine the mass of a galaxy or a galaxy cluster as well. And mass is one of the things that sort of determines where stars will fall on the main sequence. So you measure it by surface temperature and luminosity, and you find out that also once you measure some masses, that there's also a mass pattern, that the lowest mass stars are down here in the lower right to stars like the sun, and up to higher mass stars up to the upper left. So the mass sort of trends as you go up and down the main sequence. The higher up the main sequence you are, up towards the upper left, you're going to get the most massive stars. And down towards the lower right, you're going to get the least massive stars. So mass is one thing that tells you on the main sequence where it's going to be. But you determine that from the luminosity and the temperature. So how luminous is it and how temperature you'd plot it. But it turns out that there's also a mass component. The mass relates with that as well. And then finally, with the masses here, when we look at the masses of stars, we find out that the sun's a very big star. Going back and forth, right? I said the sun was a very little star, the sun's a very big star. I'm confused, right? Okay. If we look at this, these are, this section is stars that are less than a quarter of the mass of the sun. That's about 41% of the stars that we see in the sky. Stars less than about half the mass of the sun are about 28%. Stars up to about the mass of the sun are about 19%. And if you add that up, that's what, 40, 50, 60, 88%. So 88% of the stars in the universe are the mass of the sun or less. We're a pretty big, we got a pretty big star. If you take 100 stars, you know, 88 of them are going to be smaller than the sun and 12 are going to be bigger. It's a pretty big, pretty big star. And then you can divide it up as you go further into this. You'll see that these are, you know, 8%. And these very, very big, bright stars that we see are only a tiny fraction of the stars in the universe. We just see, but we can see them halfway across the galaxy. We can only see the other ones. We don't see these. If these stars are halfway across the galaxy, they may as well be invisible. Hubble's not going to see them. We're not going to see them with anything we have. They're too faint for us to be able to see. And then, whoops, that's the end. And I don't think I have, I'm not going to get through it in a minute. So I'll go through the summary and do the rest of the HR diagram on Thursday. So we finished chapter 10, but I'll finish, I won't try to summarize it at this, at this point. I'll go through this quickly on Thursday. Question, sir? Quiz, quiz four, you said Yes. I'll explain it a little bit more. Is there anything we can focus on to prepare ourselves for? You'll actually get the exact answer on Thursday. Okay. But, but I won't leave it up while you're taking the quiz. So I will actually go through exactly what you're going to do on Thursday. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Have a good one.